You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. So today's episode will hopefully be interesting for people where we're going to try and look beyond the surface story. What is going on for people who want to transition? Why do people want to transition? What is it that it gives them? What is it from a psychological level will it provide? And we want to kind of, I suppose, really go there, go there in all and look at all the different corners and all the kind of, I think an awful lot has been presumed around trans and I think hopefully you and I will be able to go deeper than that Uh, I think so you know the surface story is a very medical one it's very biological transition is meant to align the person with the identity they feel someone else might say transition is a way to change secondary sex characteristics and I guess on a surface I would say I I understand that. I acknowledge that. But I do think there are much, much deeper things going on that at least I have become curious about as I've worked with dysphoric young people. So um, where shall we start? Maybe will we start with with the little kids? Why would a little kid have gender dysphoria and it's usually around everybody seems to say the age three but Mm. somewhere around three to five or something and it is a developmental stage that they become quite gender repressive at that age where Mm -hmm. the girls are thrown into the kitchen in their minds and the boys are out out working you know they can get buried they suddenly turn into 1950s housewives (laughs) between three and five and some of those children seem to develop some people would call it gender dysphoria some people would say that they become gender non-conforming some of them say it's younger than that it's two but i i'm not sure how much you could read into kind of toddlers mm-hmm. behavior but certainly by the time they're verbal some children are definitely gender non-conforming what are your views of those mm-hmm. i think there's probably a, a, a cohort of these young people who are gender non-conforming because it relates to the future development of same-sex attraction and homosexuality. I mean, it's well documented that very gender non-conforming children often grow up to be gay and lesbian. So I think that's one explanation. Could I just just push you there a little bit? Sure. That is very much one explanation, and that's what people often turn to. And then I immediately think, but why? Why? Mm. to pre-gay, pre-lesbian people? Why are they gender non-conforming? That's a good question. You know, I I don't really know. I mean, this makes me, on the surface, my mind races for some kind of a biological explanation, which I really don't have on hand because this is not my area of expertise. But I, I do wonder, I do wonder if there are kind of complementary masculine and feminine traits that end up pairing up together. I mean, do you think it's possible that when uh, a same-sex couple pairs up together, there still tends to be a little bit of yin-yang going on? There does, usually. With almost every relationship, we complement each other. Um, I, I kind of, I like to look to nature and to see what's going on in nature. You know, we are animals and, you know, we, we can be so sophisticated as humans, but at the end of the day, we are. And, you know, there are, you know, same-sex attracted animals. And then I think, but there aren't gender roles in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Therefore, those same-sex attracted animals are not suddenly putting on a donning an apron when they're, when they're pretty. I think there's big gaping gaps in our understanding of how a sexuality develops. Because part of me is thinking, 
does the gender non-conforming come first and then does the sexuality come? Is that what's happening? Mm. Mm. Or is the sexuality first and then the gender non-conforming coming? Yeah, I I really don't know. I think that's an interesting question. I, I read a piece, I share it often, uh, from the Village Voice online magazine called Queer in the Crib. And it's a kind of a long, a long editorial piece about gender identity as an emergent concept. And the author basically makes the argument that, you know, very, very feminine boys almost always turn out to be gay. And so he's questioning the idea of gender identity being imposed onto this group of boys. And we can share that in the notes. But you're asking an important question, a chicken egg question. And to me, um, that that's an interesting question, but it's perhaps not the most interesting question. I think my my interest comes in, why is it so challenging as a culture for people to accept and um, normalize highly non-conforming behavior. Mm. I I know that even when I was very young, in my experience, when there is a child who's highly gender non-conforming, everybody kind of notices. There's a visceral recognition that something about this young person is different. And even when we live in a culture that is, thank goodness, increasingly becoming really um, mindful of tolerance and diversity, I think there's just something visceral that people will clock when a young person is very, very non-conforming for their biological sex. And I'm, I'm curious about why that is. Is it just that we like pattern and category? And when someone breaks open a category, it, it, it just sits a certain way with people. I don't know, but I, I'm fascinated by the way non-conforming children have always kind of stood out, no matter how progressive, like even if there's no explicit attempt to make them different or call them out, which unfortunately there, there often is. But even in, in the most progressive of you know social circles, people can just tell when someone's really outside of the box. Yeah. And I wonder what it is that is creating their gender, gender nonconformity. I look back at myself and in my own childhood and I think, I don't know, because this is hindsight and it's, it's a bit dangerous when somebody, at, you know, puts attributes on to something that, you know, who mm-hmm. knows whether I'm right. I think I was seeking power when I was a kid. I think I looked around at a three-year-old and went, Jesus, I'm going on to the boys. I felt boys were better. I was kind of an internal misogynist. I felt yeah. girls prissy and mm-hmm. silly and weak. And uh, they didn't have the power and they weren't very impressive. And I found them annoying. Yeah. I didn't really like girls very much. And the only girls I liked were boyish girls. Yeah. Weren't yeah. Girlish. girlish was a, a bad adjective. It was like yes. the equivalent of annoying. Yes. Yeah. And so that's, I would argue that was what was driving me. While somebody else who might have been lesbian or gay mightn't have been anything to do with that. And it might have been a much less psychological jump there and a much more biological jump. And like you said, you know, you turned to the biology and so did I just naturally because sexual orientation, we veer into biology. Mm-hmm. Gender identity, we're, me and you see it as a psychological formation. Yeah. And then suddenly there's this extraordinary meeting where the majority of gender non-conforming children turn out to be gay and lesbian. And yet here you are, Stella. I know, yeah. <laughs> Married woman with children. Very heterosexual. Married to a man, I should say. Yeah. Well, I am. I'm very heterosexual. And I, I very definitely, there, was, there wasn't much uh, messing around with that. It was very definite and it was strong in me. And I think having heard so many stories of gender non-conforming children, I had such a hard time as a gender non-conforming kid, but I had it easy because I fancied the boys and yes. I knew I did. And yeah. that, if I had fancied girls, Oh, my God, the pain I would have suffered. I don't know where I would have gone. I think uh, it would have tipped me over because I was so all over the place to start with Mm. that I was lucky enough 
that I had that easy card that didn't require any cognitive jumps or challenges. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do think there's a meeting here of biological drive and then there's some sort of gender identity is formed and there's nobody's coming up with the very good, um, I think, analysis of, well, why are all these gay people gender nonconforming? Mm. You know, I, I would like to touch on something you mentioned with the kind of, you called it internalized misogyny <laughs> when you were just a little bitty child. Um, but I like to think about this as the baggage associated with our sex. And this is a concept I'll sometimes talk with clients about, but um, being of either sex, there is this kind of culturally associated baggage. Some of it is stereotype, right? But some of it is also true. Mm. When you think about the types of relationships that young girls have with one another, they are patently different than the way boys interact with one another. So let's say you're the kind of girl who doesn't have a lot of patience for, you know, certain types of social interactions, maybe gossip, maybe a little bit of giggliness oh. or whatever the case is. I hated be. it. Yeah. Okay. So you had low tolerance for that. And that was the baggage associated with femalehood that maybe yeah. you just didn't, you just didn't want to deal with. Yeah. And I know some of my clients are, very sensitive. And when I say sensitive, I don't just mean, oh, you're being so sensitive. I mean that they have really strong perceptions of the world around them and how people are interacting with them. So if you're a girl and, you know, maybe uh, adults kind of make assumptions about what kind of personality traits you have or assumptions about what you think is fun or assumptions about how you'd like to spend your time, and you're like, actually, no, that's not me at all. Yeah. Why bother constantly having to defend, you know, the ways you're different? Why not just jump over to the other side where those assumptions won't happen yeah. anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Can I be on this team because I don't have to defend my 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 way of being anymore? I think um, we said it before in another episode, but I do think that it's true that the boys have a harder time being gender nonconforming than the girls insofar as the, the, the little boys who might want to be the opposite of what I want to be. They don't want the power. They want the sensitivity. They want the gentleness. And they mm -hmm. seek it out. Mm -hmm. And again, why would they have to defend that? Wouldn't it easier just if they were a girl? And they didn't mm -hmm. have to be not... Because non-conforming is tiresome. I do remember as a kid, it was a real tedious question that became more and more tedious as I got older. Are you mm -hmm. a boy or a girl? And I was like... It's almost like somebody who has a very difficult name to pronounce. And then um, every single time they meet somebody, there's a tedious, no, this is how you say it. This is how you say it. Um, I, I kind of had to do that with every new encounter. So all of our, all my friends would be ready for the, when we encountered anybody new, I would be asked, are you a boy or girl? That whole thing had to be navigated. Mm -hmm. And it was tedious and boring. Yeah. And embarrassing and exposing and a little bit more of a light than I needed. Well, much easier just to jump over. Sure. Become the opposite. Sure. sure. So I, I think that's why children might want to transition. They're, they're non-conforming. They're five years old. They're like, I clearly suit. This is what I thought. And I think a lot of them do. I clearly suit over there. That's they're they're my people over there. They're the ones I get on the best with. They're the ones that they understand me. I understand them mm -hmm. to them. I think that these are really important considerations when you have, you know, behaviors and personality traits that really do match with the quote other gender. But I'm also aware that there can be even more subconscious factors at play sometimes. So for example, if you have a family where there's um, a young child and this young child is the center of everyone's attention because they're the only and everything is going great. Sometimes when mom's pregnant with a second baby, oh. if the baby is the opposite sex and parents are thrilled to have, oh, I'm so excited. We're going to have a girl, <laughs> my first girl, yay, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Without consciously knowing it, 
young children might start to think, oh, mommy will love the girl more than me. Yeah. So I, I know there are lots of different kind of constellations of how that can happen. But sometimes I don't think it's really about gender nonconformity. I think sometimes it can be about kind of deeper attempts to meet a need of not becoming invisible or of, you know, asserting power or all of these things that aren't really just about how gender behavior looks in that child. And there's also, and it's fascinating, I've seen it play with my own kids, there's an instinctive grab for attention between siblings. And so if you're the second boy or you're the third boy, you could easily um, realize I've no attention by being a boy here. I've no, there's nothing, I've nothing. But if I, I can become very different to them, I will. So, you know, the sports kid comes first, then the artistic kid comes second. Mm. There's no attention. You'll always be behind being the sports kid. So you you go for a different type of attention. And it's really noticeable. that, And I've, no, I've seen studies that uh, going back to the, the own kind of unanswered questions that um, gay uh, bo- homosexual boys are very often second and third boys in the family. Yeah. And that kind of goes with my theory and that kind of comes back to the chicken and egg and the gender non-conforming might then arise, might grow and it might evolve. Who knows? It's, it's, it's amazing when you really analyze these things where you realize there's so mm-hmm. many unanswered questions mm-hmm. and you couldn't get presumptive and reductionist about any of this because it's, it's really, yeah. really, there's a lot driving it. Then when they get older, I can see why they get, they want it. I think both of us can see, I think anybody listening to this could see why a kid would want it. It just their makeup of traits suit the other or their family dynamic present an option and they go with it. But I think it takes a certain type of child to stick with it because I think a lot of kids about five or six move out, move beyond Mm -hmm. And there's mm-hmm. the kind of intense neurotics like myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I will fight to the death. I shouldn't say intense neurotics, but I very much myself. <laughs> there. But yeah, that I do think it's my combination of personality traits made me stick it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of kids wouldn't. And neurosis mm-hmm. is what comes to mind there. And intensity. You look nervous. <laughs> no, no. I just want to clarify. When you say neurosis, are you talking about the the way it's used in the Big Five personality inventory? Yeah. In terms of having a tendency to experience challenging or difficult emotions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people interpret the word neurosis to be like the Freudian way, but we're talking about uh, the word that means a tendency to experience negative emotions or challenging emotions tendency to depression or tendency to anxiety, which is different from being neurotic in the kind of Freudian way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe I meant both ways. If I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to cover your butt here, Stella. You're not a neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not letting you because I think I, I'm neurotic in both ways. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. You can have it. <laughs> but but yeah. Your personality is what, really caused you to hang on with with dear life to your gender uh, opposite gender identity for a long time at least and i i like that some parts of that personality which is the kind of the feisty you won't i won't back down you won't better me i'm not gonna back out of this yeah i've i've laid a you know a stake in the ground here and nobody's gonna bundle me out of this Mm mm-hmm so, yeah, intensity would be very definite. And I'd say some kids who are just more pliant and biddable would just roll roll away, roll off, you know, go to school, realize it's kind of becoming a bit tedious and wouldn't get so right. I'm going to fight yeah. it all. And some people, when they realize this is getting hard, will dig in deeper. And I I think we're often missing that around children who seek to transition, we're, we're missing that they, the fight is, is kind of their energy giver. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think like one thing that comes to my mind is that when you have a very strong willed child, I often think this is going to serve them so well in their life. 
Yes. If they can get through these early years unscathed, you know, as they develop maturity and life experience. Wow, yeah. that that willingness to push up against everybody based on what your gut is telling you at the time. Yeah. It's very important. That's a great trait. Yes. I think it's probably more beneficial in the long run than I guess the opposite, which is a child who's completely agreeable. Yes. Who is like a leaf in the wind, who's willing to follow their parents' commands no matter what at all costs. That to me is a bit dangerous because children like that are very susceptible to social influence and manipulation. And And they they can lose themselves. While the kid who just says, I'm me and I am just going to stick with it and I'll fight you all, every one of you. Yeah. So some kids have that intense strength within them. As you said, you know, they're strong-willed and they'll go far. And it's very, very hard to parent a strong-willed child. It's much easier to parent an easygoing child. And yet the strong-willed children tend, you know, they tend to do great things if you can handle the kind of the storm of Mm -hmm. trying to parent them. And it's very, very difficult. Being strong-willed myself, I, I, I do, and I was very strong-willed as a kid, I do think we strong-willed people have to be careful because we can sometimes, you know, you know, be like Macbeth. We can go too far. We can just not get out because we've, stake, we've made our stand and we will not back down because we have made our stand. And we lose sight of why we've made the stand. And it's all about nobody's going to best me. And I moved into that territory and I, I, I did lose sight of wh- who or what I was. And I've done that a good few times in life, if you follow me, that it's just, it's all about what I've made my stand on. And so I think our job as parents and therapists is very much to help kids and individuals and humans and nothing to do with transitioning and everything to do with people who get themselves caught up in something to make sure that they haven't lost themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that that they still really want the thing that they've just completely and utterly wed themselves to. Yes. And and that's making sure that kids have the freedom that to be intensely non-conforming and if they wish, roll back. And that's really hard. Very hard to roll back on anything. It's hard because the, the desire to save face can be very strong, especially if you are a prideful person. Yeah. Um. And there's a sunken cost fallacy too, you know, you've invested so much in not just the direction that you're going for yourself, but trying to convince others to come along with you, particularly with something like gender gender identity or gender dysphoria. It requires the participation of so many others. And yeah. so if you've gone down that road, it takes a lot of strength and self-preservation to say, you know what, I am starting to lose out. I have to change gears because this is no longer working for me. And that is really a hard thing to do if you reach a certain point. But I want to talk a little bit more, Stella, about um, what about older kids, you know, teenagers who start thinking about transition in those teenage years, what do you think they are really seeking? What do you think that they're maybe trying to gain or trying to get away from? It's a bit I, different, I think, yeah. than the, the young ones. I see it's actually really quite different. I often think that the teenagers, the go, the puberty comes and it's very dismantling very often. And it's, you know, you, you, your body has changed and you don't quite have control over your body and you're becoming aware of your body. And I see it as more an idealistic and um, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, a kind of a, a psychological drive to be somebody different is the main attraction there. I want to be somebody completely different, a new identity, a new name blank slate, start me over again. It's all getting uncontrollable with the old me. And actually, I don't like being me. I want to be somebody different. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something incredibly imaginative and brave and idealistic. And I feel like I was saying to you earlier, it's like, you know, years ago, the pioneers went off and explored the South Pole and they explored America, you know, centuries ago. And we've nothing left to explore, but they have this whole new concept of, I'm going to be a new person. I'm not going to be that person I was born. I'm going to be somebody else. 
Mm -hmm. new name and you can't refer to my old name because I'm moving on into a whole new, I'm rewriting my history. I'm rewriting my identity. It's incredibly creative and it's incredibly alluring to somebody who's in a difficult place and feels unsure of myself. I won't say that's, uh, that's often, I think, a big, huge. And then there's also huge kind of issues around gender roles and who am I and who do I fancy? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard to be a gender non-conforming teenager, especially now. And so it's much easier to transition, I would argue, maybe, than to, than to remain different. That's interesting. So you think it's harder to be a gender nonconforming teen now. Is that because any indication of nonconformity invites a barrage of gender questions? Like I know that, um, you know, young people I talk to feel as though constantly being asked about your pronouns or how you identify, it adds to the confusion is that what you mean that it's hard to be gender nonconforming? No, no, it's not, but I agree with everything you just said there. What I what I think is that these days, um, it really has, and it's been it's a consumer pro- issue. It's very much society's kind of has has sold products to boys and girls so that the girls are wearing X, Y, and Z, and the boys are wearing A, B, C, mm. and the haircuts of the boys are like that, and the haircuts of the girls are like that, and they're really not very um they're too different they're so different that you have to be one or the other you have to be you know very very girlish or very boyish and there isn't a lot of room for the for the middle ground of i'm neither i'm just neither i'm, I'm not i'm just not mm-hmm. i don't mm-hmm. have much room for that and i think those people who feel in the middle and who feel like i just want to wear a jumper and jeans and i don't want to be told i'm gender non i just don't want to be noticed yeah those kids I think are getting really wrecked by people saying, which side are you on? Pick your side. Where where are you going? Well, we have non-binary now. I mean, I think this is really an expression of people trying to say, again, in a too literalized fashion, but I think people are really trying to say, enough with all this gender stuff. Can't I just kind of exist in the middle with some feminine traits and some masculine traits. So I think part of what young people are seeking when they explore transition is a way, um, a way out of all that pressure. You know, right now, if you go on, you know, Instagram or, or the places where kids spend a lot of time, you're right. The, the, the girls who still call themselves girls are very, 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 hyper feminine you know and all of the people who are kind of quirky and in the middle call themselves non-binary so it gives the impression that you can't really exist somewhere in the middle Mm. and um i mean you talked a little bit about the the body changing and that being really difficult and i want to lift up too that you know sexuality is starting to emerge at this time and you know each kid is on their own pace And we know from some data that teenagers today are experimenting with sexuality a little bit later in life than people from like my generation or past generations. But I've often thought about something that seems to get missed in a lot of these conversations about particularly boys who start questioning their gender in adolescence. So I'm thinking, let's say about um, this polarized male and female, let's say you have a young boy who He's not really very macho. He likes girls, but he doesn't really know how to talk to girls. And perhaps he's not one of those boys who's willing to make kind of aggressive, crude jokes about girls' bodies. He's more of a sensitive type. He doesn't really know how to be this confident male aggressor. (laughs) He doesn't want to be. And so he he might wonder, you know, could I really not be a guy if I don't know how to do these things or if I don't fit in this category? And oftentimes what I've seen is that boys who have really struggled to connect with girls in a romantic way, they don't really know how to talk to them or they get tongue-tied when they're in front of a beautiful girl. By starting to question their gender, all of a sudden 
they kind of get the red carpet rolled out to them. <laughs> <laughs> they become the little dress up doll of the you know, girls in their friend group who are thrilled about showing a trans girl how to be a girl and put her in clothing and put makeup on her. So all of a sudden you have a teenage boy obsessed with female form and femininity and beauty completely brought into the inner circle of girls. And I just think this is not something we should just write off as AGP or yeah. which is autogynophilia. This is not something we should write off as being perverted or, yeah. or just calling him a trans girl and that's it. I think this is male teenage sexuality trying to find a way. I think it is such a good point you raise. I think, as you said, like for thousands of years, there's a certain type of boy who's just gone tongue-tied and awkward for many years in front of the female form. Many years, those exact years that those boys are now coming out as trans. That kind of anything, 15 to 20, they just they freak out in front of the girls. They kind of go silent. They, they lose their mind. There's a fire in their head and there's just a slack jaw on their face. <laughs> they don't even know what to say or do. They've lost their mind and they very, very common. We all knew them when we were kids and those boys, I thought, they've never had it easy, those boys, and they never had much luck with girls. They really didn't. They Then a lot of them move out, and then in their 20s, they end up being the really nice fellas. They're, they're the real nice ones. The ones that had those troubles in their teens tend to be the sensitive, gentle, certainly the men that I like. Yeah, um, artists, you know, yeah. they're in a band, they're kind of quiet. <laughs> and, you know, it's in some of them are, and I remember my husband describing how he was, and he must, you know, just, a woman is in the room, and I can't <laughs> think or talk, and I need to leave. <laughs> you know, and it's. I'm sure men listening will say, oh, yeah, yeah, either I know them or I was one. Yeah. And then they mature, and they learn how to speak in front of the female form, and they <laughs> gather themselves. Those boys, those those lovely, sensitive, gentle boys are being told that they're autogynophilic and they need to get over themselves and this is an erotic obsession and w what the hell is wrong with you? And I think it's so dismissive, reductive and inaccurate to what's going on to these boys. These boys are having a whole other thing. They've, they've for generations, been obsessed with the female form. They're obsessed with the female form and it's it's gone that direction. That's how it's gone. It's gone that direction and it's very, very understandable. And they're getting preamed and primed, hopefully, sometimes only online, but sometimes actually physically by mm -hmm. women. And they're just thrilled. They're just thrilled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think they need gentleness. And I wonder where they will go. I wonder what will happen to those boys. Because I notice they're often a little bit older than girls who get the gender. I find the girls are more along the lines of 11 to 15, 11 to 16, well, yeah. more like 15 to 20. Is that what you're finding? Like, this is very rough. Like, yes, I think that, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's spot on. I think you're right that they need, they need compassion. I mean, on one hand, you lift it up that sometimes they're told they're autogynophilic and to get over themselves. But I think more often than not, their story, at least within youth culture, is taken at complete face value. Oh, yeah. You know, that they are actually girls. Um, but yes, I think there are adults and certain, maybe certain professionals who would just write this off as whenever a boy's dysphoric, AGP, and that's it. And even if there are some traits of autogynophilia, which maybe we should clarify what that means for yes. our audience. Okay. So autogynophilia is quite controversial term, but it's um, a descriptive term that was created by uh, researcher Ray Blanchard that describes a certain type of male person who seeks transition, who seems to have some kind of erotic component to their cross-gender behavior. So unlike males who are attracted to other males who might have always been quite feminine presenting, who want to transition to women and then date men, um, men who Ray Blanchard says are autogynophilic get aroused by the idea of themselves as women. So these are young boys who had 
sometimes cross-dressing behavior in their childhood along with masturbation or a sexual component. And so, you know, this categorization looks at men who transition to women in these two categories, either they're homosexual and they like men or they're autogynephilic. And well, I think that that distinction is important. I'm not someone who doesn't believe in autogynephilia. I certainly think it's a real thing. I also think the research gives us that data. It's a descriptive data. But as a psychology person, I'm really curious about, well, what is this? Why, why is this? Mm. And let's be compassionate because I know that men who, str- who struggle with autogynephilia, whether they are trans-identified trans women or if they're just men who identify as men who have this compulsion, there's a lot of pain behind it. And people feel like there's a lot of struggle. And I think this is a cohort that's often highly misunderstood in the general public. They're either treated as though they have some horrible perversion or they're told that they're experience isn't even real, that autogynephilia isn't real. So, I mean, that's, that's just what comes to my mind. And I also think in 2020, there are lots of young boys who are seeking transition that probably don't fall into the category at all, Mm. who are just typical boys who are developing, you know, an obsession with femininity, which is not uncommon for males. It's very normal. There's a few there's a few things. One thing I'd like to talk about is just what has happened to the transvestites. Where did they come from? Where are they gone? Mm. And also, why was there not the opposite transvestite? Where You know what I mean? The female transvestite, they never existed because there's an awful lot of uh, accoutrements to be a woman, like bras and slips and makeup. And it, it can feel like a whole world that must sound, must feel very alluring. Not if you're a woman, because it's actually painful and tedious. But <laughs> as a man, I can see how you could go, wow, that world with yeah. the, you know, the pink and the frills. It must feel very, very... Um, Sexy. <laughs> yeah, and very inner world that you just can't get into. You know what I mean? What's behind the curtain? You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I can really understand what what might be driving that. But I do think that, you know, in around 95, 96, 1995, 1996, they moved transsexualism and transvestitism into transgender. And they did that to make it an umbrella term. And uh, that was a, an interesting move. But it seems to me that we're not hearing about transvestites. Where are the transvestites? I, I just, I, we don't hear very much of them. And there was a real move when I was in the 90s, like transvestitism had really come into its own as such. And now you don't hear of it very much. And I just wonder what's going on with that. Has it been submerged by transgenderism and what's going on there? But I, I, I suppose I also think that there's a whole other group that we haven't looked at that I would like to look at with the teenagers and time is running on, that there's certain kids who are very, very, very distressed for many different reasons. And they're girl or boy, it doesn't really matter. But they're very, very distressed and they want a different life. They want everything to be different. And maybe, you know, 10 years ago, they might have been self-harming or 20 years ago, they might have had anorexia or maybe not. Maybe they'd just be very, very distressed. And I think that the magic pill of you can be somebody different is a very alluring concept. And it might work for some of them. Yeah, go be be somebody different. I know mm-hmm. people have taken, you know, all sorts of kind of experiences and said, that changed me. And I yeah. went from the most disturbed kid in the world to something else because mm-hmm. I was able to change. I moved house. I became something different. Mm-hmm. And it was the making of me. And I think those kids, those kids can get lost in the middle of it. And their parents sometimes might say, oh, it's social contagion or it's or it's autogynephilia or it's this or it's that. And I'm like, actually, no, I think it's deep distress. and I think we're missing it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we, we touched on before we got on this call that, that sometimes a highly destabilizing experience causes a person to question everything they thought they knew. Yeah. And it's, it's no coincidence to me that puberty often is that. I mean, I think there's an argument I hear sometimes that, oh, these teenagers need to suck it up. Life isn't so bad. We're such a privileged, you know, culture. And we, we are. And I believe in resilience. But 
it's easy to forget how existentially distressing puberty is. Yeah. And the idea of um, asking, you know, what is going on with me? Why do I feel so bad? Why do I feel so different? Yeah. Why is my body, like I sometimes will say in therapy, it's like you took a bodysuit of another body and you put it on your body in a matter of months. So yeah. it's really, really hard. Yeah. And that's not to say that we should block puberty because puberty is traumatic. But sometimes development and growth is painful. So I, I, I agree, Stella, that there's a like a deep question of trying to understand who am I in relationship to this body? Who am I in relationship to other people? And, you know, I, I hear kids say, um, cause I'll, I'll sometimes ask, you know, well, were you questioning your gender before you, before you heard about gender identity and before you heard about transition and they'll say, no, just cause I didn't know I could. Mm -hmm. So to, to this idea that you're raising Stella of becoming a new person, if we don't think that that's an option, why would we explore it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is kind of a different example, but as I think back over my own life, um, I've worked in lots of different kinds of jobs. I went to, um, I took a break between undergrad and grad school and I was a bartender and I lived in a shitty little apartment and I've done all kinds of things. And based on my financial situation, what I could afford to buy was just like limited in my mind by how much money I had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I just didn't fantasize about anything that was beyond my financial means. I remember that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then as you get older and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm stable now. I can actually think about, you know, this or that item or this type of house or this type of car. Yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, if we have a cap in our mind about what we can imagine, we limit ourselves, which thank goodness we do, because otherwise we would live in a smorgasbord of things we want and we can't have. But I think about transition and the possibility of changing your body completely, the possibility of becoming a new person, once that kind of carrot gets dangled in front of you, does it become really hard to look away if you're so distressed and if your current life is just too hard and it's not going well? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think that's exactly what happens. It becomes too hard to look away. It's too alluring of Everything about me is wrong. Everything about me is wrong. I don't like anything about me, and I don't really like anything about my life. My friends are okay, but really, no, I'd like to just do it all differently. I want to start all over again. Can I just start all over again? Mm -hmm. And that's the concept. It's like, yes, you can. Pick your name. Pick your identity, and off you go. Start all over again. And because this is being offered as a concept, I have no doubt that I can so understand why people say, yeah, I'll go for that. I'd go for that. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, children aren't going to be worried or teenagers and, you know, the medical burden. That's just not going to come into their brain. Like, you know, when you were smoking at 13, the hell did you care about cancer? It's whatever. You know, it's just not even an issue. Yeah. And it, it's a beautifully kind of idealistic concept of I'm going to construct myself. You know, God isn't in this. I am making me. I'm going to make myself from the beginning. I'm going to make my own name. It won't be my parents. I'm going to make my own identity. I yeah. am doing all on my own. Wow. You know, wow. Sadly, it does come with a huge medical burden. And sadly, there are kind of other issues that come down the road. Do you follow me? But as a concept, wow, mm -hmm. is all I can say. It's so it's incredible, but there it's are incredible, isn't it? And good for them, you know, good for them for their kind of it's all gone wrong. Let me start again. But it's also kind of a, it feels quite a, a new concept of we are what we perceive ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's a new because before you are your family, you are shaped by your family, by your race by your education, by your money. You are shaped by all those things. And nowadays it's like, no, I'm an individual. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna be whoever I want to be. Yeah. Nobody can nobody can tell me who I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um it's making me think about how limitations actually really help us grow and and use our creativity. I remember um, I took art classes when I was in school for a couple of years. I'm horrible at art. I didn't get very far. <laughs> but but the years when I made the most progress was when I had a really fantastic teacher who would give us challenging assignments with strict parameters. Yeah. Right? So you have to use this type of yeah. um, materials. You have to do this kind of um, you know, sketches or whatever. And the more strict the parameters were, the more it forced us as students to develop certain skills. Yeah. But if you put a blank page in front of me and gave me every kind of art tool in the world, I would be completely paralyzed. I wouldn't be able to do anything. And that, that I think that is getting to a lot of teenagers because, you know, the clients we see, they might come in one day and they're trans, another day they're genderqueer, another day they're, they're gender fluid or whatever. And I think that the, the, the dizzying array of, of choice is, is frying their brains. So there's a huge amount of what am I? Who will I be? Who am I going to, I, I, uh, going to construct? And I don't think that's, I think they'd be better off had they been given parameters of these are the kind of, these are the limitations of your life. And we've mm-hmm. kind of sold them this Disney concept of you can be anything you wish. Oh, yeah. We really yeah. sold children that, you know, which was so inappropriate. It's inappropriate and it, it creates a situation where, like, a child is always responsible for curating their perfect self. Yeah. And how hard is that, you know? I I work with parents and a lot of times what I've noticed is that especially with a very young child who seems to have been highly influenced by like social media or lots of YouTube videos, you have a 13 or 12 year old when the parents come in and say, Oh honey, I see that this is really important to you. It seems confusing, but we're just going to put some really firm boundaries around this. We're not going to do a, B or C. A lot of times the young person seems very relieved There might be an initial period of like, I can't believe you don't believe me or some kind of frustration. But soon thereafter, there is relief because it is a very taxing responsibility at 12 to have to pick from, you know, dozens and dozens of identities and then remold your entire persona to match that. That is a huge burden that, frankly, young people are not not meant to have to choose. And it's very exhilarating having the choice, first of all. Oh, I'm not me. I'm going to be somebody else. Whoa. So there's a whole buzz there, okay? And if you go in on the kid when they're in the middle of that buzz, it's like, get the hell out of my way. I'm in the dream stage. This is is really like nothing else before. Then the mechanics start kicking in of Mm. how do I become this person? And they're in a different stage and that's when they sometimes move to say, well, maybe I'm not actually trans, maybe I'm non-binary. And then it becomes a big, long kind of mental headache for them. And I, I, I think there's more room for maneuver then than in the first glow. I, I kind of get the feeling that the first glow is kind of your, your, your won't be talking to anyone, but you're right about it. You have to put down the boundaries. Mm-hmm. But I think as far as talking about it, I think it's only when there's fluidity and movement and kind of that you'll kind of get some decent conversations going about what might be driving it, what is shaping it, where where will they be going? I am conscious, though, that there is other cohorts. There's some women who are gender nonconforming all the way, just to kind of make sure that we can reach all the different people. There's some women who are gender nonconforming and then somewhere in their 20s or 30s become trans in the last few years and it seems to be a kind of a tiring the butch lesbian who trans us mm-hmm. i think they get tired mm-hmm. do, you, do, you, do you feel that they get exhausted about being gender nonconforming? well i think that well when i was in university not that long ago like less than probably a decade or so ago i had a lot of lesbian friends who were very gender nonconforming. they were proud and happy i mean they they knew that they were women they could relate to the female experience, but they also had their own way. And they were, you know, obviously getting along well with men, 
but also very, very comfortably and proudly women. I think, though, the more transgender identities have become mainstream, the more that masculine women are getting questions like, when are you going to transition? You know, do you identify as a guy? Getting their pronouns, even though viscerally, I mean, even if a woman is quite masculine, you know that she's a woman. I mean, she opens her mouth and talks and you know she's a woman. But Mm. these days, masculine women are constantly uh, having the implication that it's at some point they're going to transition. And I bet that is very, very exhausting. And what about the men in kind of late middle age? And they have had children and they quite suddenly, you know, that they are a cohort that seek to transition. And I know I've, I've been in contact with many families who've, who've kind of experienced that and how to experience it. They've had their children. Do you, do you follow yeah. me? What is that drive? That seems to be, to me, it's often kind of a, a kind of, I want to be somebody new. I want to be mm. somebody, somebody different. You know, there might be autogonophilia as well, but mm-hmm. it's often that kind of that last gasp of I'm now moving into chap- the la- last act of my life and I want it to yeah. be a different life. Yeah, I mean, to me, that reminds me of, you know, men who have some kind of a, a I don't, I don't want to call it this because it's dismissive, but let's say they really get fixated on taking their secretary and running off to the Bahamas, yeah. you know, or um, buying a very sports car. Yeah. Again is I'm in the last act of my life. I'm just going into the last act and hang on. I, I didn't live the life that I wanted to live. Hang on. This isn't, I want to That's go right. left or go right. I'm just not yeah. going on this path. Let me off. And I think that's what we're doing. I think in cases like this, there's probably some kind of history of repression. That would be my guess. A sense of a life unlived, you know, yeah. or fantasies unrealized. I I believe that everybody in their, maybe I, this is a justification for my own crazy 20s, but I think everybody in their teen and 20 years, teens and 20s, really has a lot of experimentation to do and a lot of stuff to get out of their system so that when you reach your 30s and 40s and beyond, you can settle. You know, you can accept the mundane. You can accept the sometimes ho-hum boringness of life or the responsibilities you have to do. And I think that if a person has really repressed their freedoms and their joys and their the wild side Mm. their whole life it's gonna catch up with them I don't believe that that autogynephilia explains it fully I I think there's a sense of repression that's probably been persistent in those experiences and maybe as well there's a sensuality that they have repressed yes and that that they they see it in their gendered way as you know they want to wear tights and wear dresses but actually they want the kind of the there, there is a real sensuousness to it. Like, you know, I did flirt with it myself when I was in my 20s, just wearing really nice clothes and really nice fabrics. And it is very yeah. annoying. So if they were always wondering about that and if there was a transvestite kind of urge and a sexual kind of urge around that, it is beautiful. The, you know, the fabrics, you know, pertaining to women and all the kind of bits and pieces around it, it is incredibly yeah. alluring. And I can see why they think, well, I want that. I want that. I just want it. Yeah. I mean, the the opposite of repression is luxuriating in your senses. Yeah. There's something very uh, just enrapturing about all of the hyper kind of feminine pampering things. And I also think about, um, you know, having having the desire to be wanted, to be mm-hmm. wanted sexually and to feel sexy mm-hmm. and to be attractive. And if, yeah. if, if in this person's life, he has always been the responsible provider, 
that's not very sexy and you don't get to feel alluring. And I mm. wonder if the, the femininity is a way to get in touch with that. And so they want to be Matahari or something suddenly. And that's why a lot of them really get the backup of a lot of feminists, because the feminists are like, ah, that's not being a woman. Mm-hmm. Being a woman is difficult. It's a patriarchal system that we're we're trying to break through. And by God, it's not about wearing silks and of being worshipped by the builders. But I think they're all they're talking in two different channels here. Yeah. Because what the men are seeking is something that they're seeking that does exist about sensuality and For luxurious sure. and being attractive and being very sexually kind of wanted. Well, mm-hmm. feminists are like, I'm not in any of that. How dare you say that's womanhood? Mm-hmm. And I would, I would push back a little bit and say, well, what is it? What is it that they want? Well, what is it that those men are seeking? Like, it does seem to cover it. What are you thinking? Well, I think I just don't I understand know every why feminist in the world. <laughs> well, I think both can be true at the same time. Yeah, I yeah. don't see these things as always being in in polar opposition to one another. I mean, I am a woman. I've had the experience of living as a woman my whole life. And so obviously I recognize on a very deep visceral level that me being female is not about those things. Yeah. But if I was an outsider watching and constructing in my mind what I think it means to be a woman, I can understand why somebody would get those things all tied up together. And I do think that it doesn't get us anywhere to just berate uh, that type of fantasy, let's say in a male who wants to transition. I think it's much more interesting to say, what is it that this person is seeking? What is it on a personal level that they have felt unallowed disallowed from because there's something going on psychologically that is important and valuable to that person and if we can hold it with a little more compassion and curiosity we can avoid the whole back and forth argument about this being oppressive or this being reductionist because yeah, it is if you're a woman and you you know that that's not what womanhood is. But to anyone seeking womanhood, there are these elements that might be very alluring. So I always try to stay curious about wh- what is being sought after. I do think what Hakshi Horvath said uh, with Aaron Brewer was very interesting around that. Because Hakshi was saying that when he transitioned to becoming a woman, he, he, it became his hobby. And Mm -hmm. it was like a hobby being a woman. And that's what he was doing for those 11 years or whatever. And he was, you know, you know, he enjoyed that hobby and it became his thing. And so he'd be this kind of city working girl who went off on a Saturday to buy boots. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the mindset that I've met of some people, that it becomes their thing to do. But there's a whole new group that we've been thinking of as well, where they're not gender nonconforming people. And they're not, they just seem to want to play with concepts and categories. And they want to be pioneers and they want to stretch boundaries. And gender is the thing to stretch these days. I don't know if I'm being reductionist, but that's something that seems to be mm-hmm. coming up. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people say, you know, uh, I've heard some female detransitioners say, I was just this boring cis white girl. And then all of a sudden, I could be this trans guy which was just way more interesting way cooler and I do think you know there there's something about our ordinariness which people can struggle with if your life is boring and you're just some guy you're just some girl and the whole hum day-to-day is just unappealing it can be really fun, I imagine, to curate this other person. You get to go, you know, purchase all these things that you never would have purchased and play with clothes and hair or appearance in a brand new way. It's like a costume. And you get to push back at society. You get to push back at the rules. You get to say, who says that boys do this and girls do that? You get to push mm-hmm. back at all the things that you, you can. And you also get to kind of make your own rules. Yeah. And I, I wonder where it'll all go. I'm, I'm really love to have a crystal ball and see what it'll be like in the 2030s. And will we have explored, will we have expanded this category? Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. will Will we go back to a more repressive era? Well, I think one thing that um, I do worry about is that, you know, you and I have explored all of these really fascinating psychological elements. And yet the way gender is being held currently by the medical establishment is very much um, driven by surgery and medication. So I do worry that people who are exploring these kind of symbolic meanings end up getting funneled into a very literal understanding of that. So rather than being able to use these things to widen their understanding of themselves and explore untapped parts of themselves, they end up just on a trajectory of surgery and medication, which doesn't actually get them what they think they're going to get. Now, that may not always be true. I think some people medically transition and at least initially feel pretty satisfied. But yeah. I've met lots of people who say, you know, I realized later down the line that actually I could never become the other sex and it was always going to be me in this body pushing myself medically to look different, but it doesn't actually change who you are. And just thinking about the vulnerability of young people who are really seeking this transformation of becoming another person, I do think it's very irresponsible that the the doctors and therapists who typically are working around these issues um, promote a fantasy that is not based in the kind of limitations of the body and what it will or will not be. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's that great book with, you know, wherever you go, there you are. You never get away from yourself, you know. You still wake up in the morning the same groggy way that I wake up. I'm never, you know, and I, I've still got my tendencies and I can do what I want to change them and I'm still going to be me. And that takes, it's a bitter pill to realize, mm-hmm. yeah, you're stuck with you. You're literally chained to your body as, you know, great writers have described that. And um, people can seek to change it and it can be very satisfying. Scott Nugent has been quite interesting. He's a trans man and he sees it as an arc of around about seven years. And then maybe some people find it very exhausting after that and then might wish to kind of think, well, should I have? I know Hakshi Horvath, he he was transitioned for 11 years. So you, it's like you can't say that's a failed marriage as such. You know, it was 11 mm-hmm. years. You, you know what I mean? So when, when something has been a large section of your life, very successful, and then it isn't, might that be our new way of, of understanding it? You know, I, I don't know because other people would be screaming at me saying, well, the medical burden and infertility and sexual functioning and pain and hysterectomies. There's so many implications for so many people. And we are in the we're in the, the kindergarten of understanding this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think what, what makes this particularly challenging is that at every given point in time, we have no way of anticipating how we will feel in the future about a decision. This is what makes therapy for transition very challenging, actually, because you can sit there with an informed consent list and tell somebody, do you know that this will happen? Are you aware of this and this and this? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, great, great, great. Where do I sign? I think there's a real, I'm glad you, I know we're coming up to the end, but there's a real issue around gatekeeping. Is there any point of psychologists saying, do you know this? And do you know that? And do you know the other? Because honestly, people will do what they want to do That's and they'll right. get what they want to get. And um, putting people in the way and saying you have to live in the opposite gender for two years and things like that. I think public awareness and education about what might be driving any given situation would be so much more effective than pseudo gatekeeping of asking people to live in the opposite sex for two years. I, I just I think it's kind of wrong headed and it's simplistic mm-hmm. and patronizing. And I think there's much better ways to make sure that people are equipped with the right uh, education and information to make good decisions. And that's why my my take is that we need to encourage not mandate, but encourage psychological exploration before big decision making. 
Because if you treat it as though a checklist that we have to get through together, a, a young person is going to, you know, convince themselves that they really have thought about it all and this and and that until they just check off the boxes. But when we look at it in a different way and we say, oh, you know, this is going to be a fascinating process of self-discovery. Are you open to whatever comes out of it? That's very different than let's just grit our teeth and get through the checklist. And one other thing that is needed, and I completely agree, not mandate, but encourage, but also that there's discussion like you and I are having, that the discussion in the media, that there's discussion in the papers about different concepts, such as some people believe in gender identity and some people believe that there's more more uh, gender dysphoria is a condition that should be medicalized. Some people think it should be treated with psychology. And the more conversation and um, public awareness there is around that will actually open things up so much more yeah. than mandating gatekeeping and things like that, which just feels simplistic. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 